0: Well, I think all sensible people have the British Constitution as one of their hobbies. It is the most interesting uh, matter to to discuss and be informed about. As Dicey said, Dicey argued, it is Parliament that is the defender of the liberties of the people, of our ancient Constitution and of our freedoms. I I give way. I'm Jacob Rees-Mogg, delighted to be with you once again to spend time talking about something very dear to my heart, the constitution of this United Kingdom. In each episode, I'm talking to some of the most sagacious specialists and eminent experts on the subject of our constitutional democracy, with a view to exploring the role of Parliament at its heart. In this episode, I hope to examine Parliament's legislating function in a way which builds on my discussions so far. Here is, first, Professor Vernon Bogdener. And then Natasha Engel, the former MP and Deputy Speaker, on the role of MPs in linking up those they represent with the executive during the lawmaking process.
1: Many constituents, perhaps most constituents, they have interests which aren't necessarily those of the grand themes of party debate. For instance, if you're a small farmer or a small businessman, you may be interested in quite technical details about how legislation might affect your farm or your business. And so for the MPs to raise it. The, the understanding that the, problem, that the problems are the same, whether, you know, whether you're in Somerset or you're in North East Derbyshire, you know, people have similar problems. It's how we deal with those. And actually coming together as a parliament and you know, lots of different MPs from lots of different backgrounds is much better at solving those problems than if you're doing it by yourself.
0: I'm very grateful to both Natasha Engel and Vernon Bogdanov, for their views, and I do encourage you to listen to the full-length, director's cut version of my interviews with them. For now, though, in this episode, I'm joined by Philip Norton, Lord Norton of Louth, who is Professor of Government and Director of the Centre for Legislative Studies at the University of Hull. Hello, Professor, and thank you for coming on. My pleasure. I wonder if I could start by thanking you, which I don't think I've ever done properly, Uh, for sending me as an intern many years ago, um, Deanna Davison, who has gone on to be a very successful politician and member of parliament. That makes me feel very old, having an intern who has become uh, an MP. But uh, as an aside, before we start our conversation, thank you, because you've educated so many um, important political figures. But I wondered if we could start this discussion by considering the development of lawmaking in the UK in recent centuries. How how did legislation come about in the way that it's come about?
1: Well, it's developed over time from the initial inception of the development of parliament. As you know, there was no one point at which we can say parliament suddenly came into being. It, it developed from the king's court. And as a response to the king making demands of the, uh, the well, initially, uh, lords and prelates and then obviously expanding it to the knights and burgesses drawn from uh, the counties and then the boroughs really to give assent to the king's demands for money and then out of that developed demands for legislation the court was there to advise the king but increasingly the development of law became a task shared with uh, parliament and parliament took over the writing of uh, statutes uh, from the king. So it really all developed from that. So really the relationship was one where the king made demands and that is still fundamental to our constitution. The crown makes demands to which parliament responds and that that I think is absolutely crucial. But over time, parliament has become more significant and developed how it responds to those Demands and particularly, I think, fundamental and, and certainly still at the core of our constitution was the Glorious Revolution and the Bill of Rights of 1689. Because what that established was that the Crown could not legislate without the assent of Parliament. So the King could no longer legislate, get round Parliament, he had to go through Parliament. Uh, and that is core to understanding the significance of the institution. Parliament is not so much a law making body because the laws are drawn up essentially within the executive and brought before parliament parliament is fundamental because it is a law assenting body without the assent of parliament you do not have acts of parliament they cannot be enforced so it's the fact that the executive the crown has to go through parliament to get its measures is absolutely fundamental and the
0: um, bill of rights removes the um, dispensing and suspensing power, doesn't it? So up until then, it was thought that the king could either get rid of a law that was inconvenient or take individuals out of the law because that suited his purpose. And from 1688-89 onwards, it's clear that the law affects everybody equally and there is no ability for it to be... um, uh, taken away in specific circumstances and that remains very important because actually governments would still to this day find it quite convenient to suspend laws from time to time
1: oh absolutely and that's what makes parliament absolutely fundamental but there are some systems where the executive can still legislate by uh, decree and and so get round the legislature now since 1689 the the crown has not been able To do that, as you indicate before that, it could. So the the monarch could exist for quite a long time without ever summoning a parliament. But from 1689 onwards, parliament's been core to the lawmaking process. and, And that's what makes it important as institution. Government cannot get around parliament. It has to go through parliament. And that's what makes parliament so fundamental to our constitutional system.
0: And we have no real equivalent to the sort of executive orders that they have in the uh, United States, that there's almost no form of law, whether it's negative or affirmative statutory instruments, that don't have to come through Parliament at some point in their um, progress.
1: If it's to have legal force, there's still prerogative powers that, that can be uh, deployed. The key point is now that, uh, you can override um, it with the use of statute. So that displaces the prerogative. So the prerogative's still there, unless... Parliament has legislated to the contrary Yes and and the
0: um, way we legislate uh, obviously that has changed enormously Uh, it always amuses me that if you look in the division lobby um, the first volume of Acts covers several hundred years and then the latest um, volume of Acts covers about six months The, the volume and the quantity of legislation and the wordiness of legislation has increased enormously do you know why that is?
1: I think it's primarily and you're quite right and you're, you're right to stress the word volume it's not necessarily the length of acts because they're not necessarily longer and um, it's the sheer number it's the combination the acts themselves sorry it's not the number of acts it's the length of acts the volume of legislation and as I think you were touching upon it's not just a quantitative aspect it's a qualitative one the legislation is more complex in its detail so it makes demands of parliament because it requires more time to get through all the legislation and indeed to make sense of it and i think it's a response to the nature of government itself in relation to society obviously with the growth of a mass electorate more demands have made of government and particularly in the 20th century the growth of the welfare state the reach of government has become far more extensive and as a consequence you get more uh, legislation, the need within that for uh, the complexity of society as well, the greater need for regulation. So, a lot of measures are regulatory. They provide, obviously, for secondary legislation. So, that has expanded over time. And, of course, it's put tremendous pressure on Parliament in order to deal with it.
0: And it makes the process of creating the legislation all the more important in the two stages, because you rightly, and I think very importantly, point out that Parliament assents to legislation rather than creating it. And there's been a lot of talk in recent years about pre-legislative scrutiny. How practical do you think that is um, when governments are under pressure, have to deliver on manifestos and so on?
1: I think it's actually extremely important, both increasingly as well, both pre-legislative scrutiny and post-legislative scrutiny. And it does give a greater role for parliament because by looking at proposals for bills before they're ever formally introduced um parliament can have a greater impact on government because at that stage ministers are more willing to listen once a bill's being introduced they're somewhat mm. less willing to depart from what's been drawn up agreed um that they'd like to see it through so you're quite right in that it adds time to the process but that's probably a price worth paying for the for good legislation. The danger is if you rush it through, it can be bad legislation and require amendment later on. If you get it right the first time round, Less likelihood of that. So I think pre legislative scrutiny can be valuable. It's enabling government to hear from others. I think pre legislative scrutiny committees can perform a valuable role in linking up with outside organisations, feeding in material to government, which helps government. And I think the experience to date, certainly with a number of bills, has shown the value of that exercise where government has accepted a large number of recommendations that have been made by the pre legislative scrutiny committees.
0: And I think that's a really important point that you make, that governments ought to welcome scrutiny, because scrutiny actually helps the government do what it's aiming to do better. Uh, If it's got a majority, it will get the broad principle accepted, but a wise government will accept adjustments to the detail, because usually that is about improving the functionality of legislation rather than trying to stop legislation by secondary means.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's a key distinction there when a bill's going through between, say, second reading, which is approving the principle of a bill and then actually addressing the detail. So members might agree with a principle. So they agree the ends of legislation, but they want to look at the means. Is this the best way of actually achieving what the government is seeking to achieve? So you're quite right. The government ought to welcome that if it, it seeks to improve the government's own Uh, uh, legislation and 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 a confident government should have no concerns uh, about that.
0: And how well do you think the two houses do their job of scrutinizing the detail? Uh, uh, I mean I'll I'll perhaps start with a a thought of my own which is that programming in the House of Commons at the committee stage has helped scrutiny enormously because prior to programming it was routine to be stuck on the first clause to require a guillotine and then report back hardly having considered the bill at all. And the programming has got, had led to much more sophisticated engagement from uh, MPs of both the governing party and of the opposition. Um, and that therefore scrutiny has improved from a recent reform.
1: I think that's right. I mean, it depends where you're coming from. And you're quite right compared with how it used to be, as you said, um, unless you had uh, eventually a guillotine and of course there was a point at which the government decided right enough's enough we've spent so long on clause one um and it, it's an improvement it could still be better there's still the danger of course of that the if you like getting the programming wrong and of course um within the comments you've still got the adversarial element so quite often what happens in committee is you're focusing upon amendments that are favored by uh the opposition so there's still if you like the political element to it So there's a difference between the two houses. I think the Lords is more concerned, if you like, with the actual detail, which can be quite practical and not raise great parties and issues. It's not an issue between the parties. So there's a difference between the two houses. But you can argue that makes for a complementary relationship between the two, because the Lords is doing it somewhat differently in a way that helps the Commons. So the Commons, if you like, plays to its strength. It is a political body, necessarily. So the Lords is less so and it's more involved in the detail. So it looks at it from a different perspective. But I think that's a wholly good thing because the two Houses are doing a good job, but in different ways. One of the things
0: I've noticed since I've been in Parliament, which I probably didn't realise when I was outside, is that a good and confident Minister in the committee stage will actually listen very carefully to the arguments that are being made. And although... The Minister won't then stand up and say, oh, yes, I think the opposition's got it right. When the bill gets to the House of Lords, it may well be there that an amendment is made that fits in with an argument that was won in the other House. And, and that that's one of the good ways in which scrutiny takes place.
1: Oh, yes. And I think I would add to that um, it might be sooner, but you're quite right, because you can get what I'd regard as an informal stage between committee stage and report stage, where a minister has listened, might meet the members who've raised the concerns with a view to a government amendment at report. Now, that might not always be possible. So You're quite right. It may be held over. And the Lords is a very good vehicle for that so there's further scrutiny but it gives the government a chance as well having reflected on its own bill to come forward with its own amendments when it reaches the lords
0: actually i was about to ask you about the informal mechanisms because i think they're very little understood and yet are remarkably important to the way um, legislation develops both in the early stages when the legislation is still being debated within government uh, and then when they get to the two houses. Now, I wonder if you might like to try and explain a bit of that uh, in, in a way that um, I imagine most people don't understand or know about.
1: I think that, that's absolutely right. I mean, the focus tends to be on the formal. Stages Because they're visible and from point of view of political science, they're measurable. Um, but what it misses out is the use of what I tend to refer to as informal space within Parliament, away from committee rooms, away from the chamber, where members get together. Now, that can be ministers meeting with members to discuss measures that have been brought forward. So sometimes you will have um, informal meetings. Ministers will call a meeting, invite members with an interest in the bill to come and discuss it before the bill comes in. And I think that's extremely valuable. And once the bill's going through at committee stage, you hear the concerns of members. you get various amendments, probing amendments. The minister satisfies the member or it raises an issue where the minister thinks actually, yes, there's something there and discusses it with a member with a view to the government itself bringing an amendment at a later stage. And, and that's wholly to the good. Um, members aren't necessarily wedded to their own amendments. They they are not themselves necessarily trained in legislative drafting. So the minister may go back to parliamentary council and say, can you draft an amendment that meets this point in a way that's uh, legally watertight? Uh, and that's, which I've had variously happen with various amendments. And I think that's absolutely to the fore. So it's that informal discussion Um, which is not visible. And so you don't always appreciate the influence that members are having because all you see on the record, usually are government amendments, which are the ones that dominate it since being passed are the ones that dominate at report stage. So you think it's wholly executive driven and it's not. It's actually a symbol of um, parliamentary influence that ministers are responding to what members have raised at earlier stages. And that happens in both houses. So by the time a bill's gone through, there might have been a lot of informal discussion between the minister uh, along with officials in the bill team actually meeting with members to discuss issues. And the
0: government and um, parliament is perhaps much more flexible than people see from the outside uh, between the parties and and the different interests because actually everybody in the end wants good and workable legislation uh, uh, and aim towards that. Um, even though they may want to apportion blame or credit in different directions.
1: Mm. Now, I think that's absolutely important, and I think that relates to another point, not just the informality, but the fact that Parliament's not a closed institution. So, uh, ministers not only hear from members, but through members, they're hearing from outside organisations that are affected by the legislation, which again is valuable for members in learning about some of the issues, being briefed on it, being able to question ministers about it. So I think that sort of engagement is wholly to the good um, in really engaging with all those who've got an interest in the subject. Members obviously have the opportunity to assess the worth of what they're hearing, decide whether it's worth pursuing. Uh, with ministers. So I think it's that um, links with affected bodies outside which could be individuals, uh, organised groups, I think that's wholly to the fore. So there's a lot of discourse taking place as the bill is going through.
0: Yes, I, I I very much agree with that and it's actually one of the reasons that this is a slight aside that I thought it was so important to bring Parliament back physically because it's much easier to get those communications from constituents, from interested groups, to the minister if you're bumping into the minister at a safe social distance uh, rather than if you're sending it by email or a formal um, submission to a department and that we were losing that for the period that we were in a, in a hybrid parliament. But I, I want to ask you about the speed with which parliament acts because um, very often the executive wants to do things quickly and parliament proceeds at a particular pace is this something you think is a problem in a democracy that Parliament isn't necessarily very responsive? Or do you think actually it's one of the great safeguards of minority rights?
1: The, the question of time, I think, is extraordinarily important because it's, it, it shows the importance of Parliament as an institution. Government can't get round it. It's got to go through Parliament. And there's limited time in each session necessarily for it to get its measures um, through Um There's a limited amount of time. There are limited parliamentary resources. And, of course, it's a a, a quite complex and rule-based system. So it constrains government. Government's got to prioritise its measures. What's valuable? What's most important? Does it want to bring forward? So there is a discipline because, of course, for most bills, they have to be got through within the session. That's quite... we We are distinctive. We're not quite unique internationally in having such a tight... Cut off the sessional cut off. Uh, Some parliaments you can have a bill on the agenda for the lifetime of the legislature, you know, typically four years. Um, Some legislatures, there's one in particular, it can stay on the agenda forever. Um, So we're pretty unusual. There's just one or two parliaments where you have that sessional cut off. There is now provision for carryover of certain bills, but that's limited. So we, we are disciplined in a way that others are not so it puts it under pressure so you've got to get the bill through within the session so i think that's an important discipline so we don't just let things run on and on but at the same time we're not rushing things through each house has to consider it got to go through one house and then go to the other for different stages so i think during the course of a session you manage to get fairly detailed scrutiny i don't think we should constrain it more for the reason you touched upon earlier because the the bills are getting longer and more complex so to be fair to ensure detailed scrutiny you need a reasonable amount of time to achieve that
0: yes and if there is consensus on the other hand you can legislate in in an emergency we managed to get rid of a king emperor in less than 24 hours which was quite a major constitutional activity at the time um, and
1: and, and with a lot of bills as you know there is consensus between the parties quite often bills go through without being divided on on second reading so it's just a case of you know improving a bill but it doesn't depends on the nature of the bill as to how long it needs uh,
0: uh, absolutely and the Relationship between uh, the the two houses, and obviously the Lords tending to do more of the detailed um, scrutiny and doing it all or almost all on the floor of the house rather than uh, large amounts of it in in a committee. Um,
1: yes, I mean we we increasingly make use of grand committees, so a bill can be away from the chamber for a uh, committee stage. But the principle which you just touched upon there is the important one: any peer can attend grand committee, so anybody with an interest in the bill or a particular part of the bill can turn for that particular part to offer their expertise. So it gives us a a good degree of flexibility.
0: And and I think that's one of the important things, that our procedures and conventions are there for purpose, to allow both the um, Queen's government to be carried on, but also for proper scrutiny and protection of the rights of minorities. Uh, And that, by and large, conventions or procedures that don't work and become obstructive get reformed in both houses. Not necessarily very quickly, but that both houses have evolved enormously to deal with the quantity of business that they have.
1: I think that's right. we've evolved as you say. I mean there are various rules, some embodied in standing orders, but others it's it's just practice that you utilize for the reason you mentioned to ensure to some degree of balance and so it's the, in the interests of both uh ministers and members and indeed the relationship between government and opposition uh to stick to those. Uh, rules because they're devised to be a benefit to both. Um, The way I usually express it in terms of government and opposition is that um, it's designed to ensure the government can get its business, but the opposition is entitled to be heard. Um, So I think that's an important relationship and the practice facilitates that. I mean, the government could try and use its majority to constrict the opposition to change the rules, But it it chooses not to do so because it recognises the legitimacy of the opposition being entitled to be heard and to make its case.
0: And I also think a wise government recognises that it won't necessarily be in office uh, for an infinite amount of time. And when it's on the other side, it may want to be able to scrutinise rather more fully than it wishes to be scrutinised.
1: Absolutely, because we often refer to the opposition as the alternative government. I make the point that the government's also the alternative opposition. Uh, that is sometimes lost, but it's not always. I know there was. It's back in the eighties. There was a recommendation to change the procedure, which would have limited the opposition, and the government opposed it. And underlying it was the fact the government recognised it was the alternative opposition. It didn't want to be in the future. In the future, in a similar in a situation where if it was an opposition, it was constrained in the way that was proposed.
0: And how do you think, having looked at Parliament for a very distinguished career, I, I got on my notes that when you were appointed in 1986, you were the youngest professor in politics in the UK. So enormously distinguished period that you've been cover. You have brought your great distinction to the coverage of British politics. You probably know more about it than anybody else in the country. In that period, how do you think the reputation of Parliament has changed with the British people?
1: And um, at it, 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 some extent, it ebbs and flows because people quite often don't think of Parliament as Parliament. Um, and they will assess their local MP separately from the institution. They distinguish between the two. So uh, we tend to find that people regard the, the local MP, the constituency MP, in a fairly positive light, generally thinking the local MP is doing a good job rather than a bad job. Um, that's different from the assessment of MPs generally and from the House of Commons, so they don't link one with the other. So with the local MP, I think there's a perception this is someone who's providing a service for the constituency, that's seen in a positive light. When they think of the House of Commons, they think either of um, two sides shouting at one another or empty green benches, so there's a problem there. And um, the the, the standing, uh, the trust in the institutions tend to ebb and flow, which is partly, well, I think quite largely influenced by I'm afraid, perceptions of government. So if there's a feeling that the administration, the executive's doing well, that tends to have a knock-on effect, positive view of of parliament. If things are not going well in public policy, parliament uh, then doesn't get quite such um, a a good response. So there's that. And then, of course, variously, it may be knocked off course by individual-level scandals and the danger of people generalising from an n of one. So there is a danger of that. So it's really Parliament, uh, each house having to work hard. I think establishes trust in the public, and and making the effort as well um, to hear from the public as well as think about how does one communicate with the public. Um, the Commons, both houses, doing a very good job in education, education resources. But there's another issue in, in demonstrating what one does politically wider to uh, really bolster trust in what uh, the institution is um, doing. So it, I think it's always going to be an uphill uh, 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 struggle. But it's a worthwhile um, exercise that both houses should be engaging in to explain to people what the institutions are doing, what it's delivering to them. So although I think people recognise one needs parliament, you can't do without it, it's absolutely fundamental. Um, Nonetheless, we can be doing more to um, enhance trust in the institution.
0: Um, And it's very reassuring as a constituency MP, the thought that um, uh, in each constituency, the uh, rating of the MP is higher than the institution as, as a whole. And of course, what we've been trying to do in this conversation is to explain what Parliament does and why not only is it essential, but it's actually quite useful. So thank you Absolutely. so much for your time. I not be more grateful that you have been willing to share your expertise with us and I hope a wider audience. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you to Lord Norton for his thoughts and insights on the lawmaking process, as seen from a parliamentary perspective. But what about legislating from the perspective of a departmental minister taking a bill through? In the next episode, I will speak to a colleague who has not only shepherded legislation through the Commons, but is also responsible for ensuring all the nuts and bolts of our constitutional arrangements are just as they should be. Until then, goodbye for now.